turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. As you know, our beloved Pastor Andrew is uh, enjoying his sabbatical, and uh, so we're beginning this morning our summer preaching series. We'll be looking together first at uh, the book of Ephesians. So you're there with me in Ephesians chapter 1. Let me begin just by reading the introduction to the book of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, growing up, lived in upstate New York in Rochester. We were about an hour and a half drive from Niagara Falls. And so we frequented Niagara Falls as a family just for, you know, Saturday picnic kind of thing, although obviously we found it was better to go on days when the rest of the planet wasn't there. I love Niagara Falls. Everyone has heard of it. It's a fond part of my childhood. But I do have to tell you that another waterfall has my heart. You might think, I mean, what could compare to Niagara Falls? Let me tell you about Hanakapiai Falls. Now, you've heard of Niagara Falls. Maybe you haven't heard of Hanakapiai Falls. It's located on the Hawaiian island of Kauai. You go out past Hanalei to the place where the road ends at Ka Beach, and you enjoy a nine-mile hike to get to the waterfall. Now, this, this has several effects. First, it um, just creates that much of a greater sense of reward when you actually get to the falls, uh, but also because you can't drive to it, it has the effect of ensuring that you're basically the only person there. <laughs> Hanakapiai Falls is as amazing as Niagara Falls but in its own way. It is much, much, much smaller. I don't know if the amount of water that... Now, you've heard of Niagara Falls. I think Hanakapiai Falls, even if you've been to Niagara Falls, it doesn't mean that Hanakapiai Falls wouldn't totally blow your mind. It doesn't mean you wouldn't be astounded by its beauty. It has its own delightful treasures to give. When we think of rich doctrinal books of the New Testament, obviously the book of Romans is the theological Niagara Falls of the New Testament. But I have to tell you, another book has my heart. See, the book of Ephesians has its own delightful treasures to give. You may have studied Romans. It doesn't mean Ephesians won't totally blow you away with its beauty. Maybe it makes us feel like we can wade a bit more safely into its waters. As we embark this summer on a six-chapter hike through Ephesians, I think you'll find Paul's letter to the Christians in Ephesus to be deeply helpful. So we think about that. Why then did Paul write this letter to the Ephesians? 
When you start a book, one of the most important things you can ask is, what was the author's intended purpose for this book? Ephesians wasn't written to correct an error, like when we think about Galatians or Corinthians or some of the other books of the New Testament. Uh, Ephesians was written as a summary of the teaching that Paul had given to the Christians in Ephesus for years. In fact, you can keep your bookmark in Ephesians 1 there uh, and flip with me over to Acts chapter 19. Just just turn with me over to the left a bit and, and let's just quickly look at Acts chapter 19. In Acts 19, we read the story of the Apostle Paul coming to Ephesus and meeting these Ephesians for the first time of whom he would eventually write this letter back to. Acts chapter 19, look at verses, starting in verse 1, it says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Don't you just love talking to new believers, getting to teach them all of the wonderful truths about our salvation? When Paul arrived in Ephesus, I mean, the idea of this passage is they didn't really know a lot of theological truths about what it means to be a Christian. So Paul stuck around to teach them. Take a look. Look at verse 8. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So it kind of, things got a little hostile in the synagogue for the Christians there. They called them the way. And so some people became hostile to the way. And they said, guys, let's, let's find a different place to gather. And so they rented space to hold their gap hall of Tyrannus. We can identify with that, renting to hold our gap. Uh, in fact, some scholars believe that the hall of Tyrannus had a steep slope where the chairs were. I'm just kidding. I totally made that up. So this, this continued for... For a long time, actually, typically Paul's modus operandi was to go from, you know, city to city preaching the gospel, people get saved, appoint elders, and next city, right? But look at verse 10. This is, maybe you've never thought about this. Look at verse 10. It says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul stayed in Ephesus teaching them for two years. This is daily you think, wait, 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 all the residents of Asia? I mean, is that like an exaggeration? So Paul's in Ephesus for two years, and all the residents of Asia hear the gospel because he's in, how does that work? Well, if you look at the cover of your worship guide or even here up in the slide, you see the, uh, the Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world located in Ephesus. And so it was almost like uh, the Ephesians lived in like the, the Paris of their day right? Everyone comes to visit Ephesus because this is where one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was. Ephesus was just a hub of activity for Asia, for the ancient Near East, and the text says Paul taught there for so long that basically everybody who was coming in and out of there heard the gospel. That's a pretty remarkable thing to think about. 
The text says Paul spent three months in the synagogue and then two years in the hall of Tyrannus, and that is pretty uncommon for Paul, even if it was just once a week, right? That's 116 sermons from the Apostle Paul. But it says daily for two years. Now, that's 730 opportunities to hear from Paul. It's just a good lesson for us to notice the, the Ephesians, when Paul showed up, they knew very little. But how about you think when Paul left, right? When we get to Acts chapter 20 and Paul leaves, I mean, just imagine having 730 opportunities to learn from the Apostle Paul. You might think, man, I would love to have 730 opportunities to hear a sermon from the Apostle Paul. That's awesome. Well, the purpose of the book of Ephesians is to condense all of the things that Paul taught them during those two years and three months into some doctrinal teachings on the gospel and some applications for practical living. In fact, this book can be clearly broken up in that way, right? Three chapters of gospel doctrine in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then three chapters of gospel culture or practical application. What does that doctrine look like lived out in chapters 4, 5, and 6? That's really a summary of the book of Ephesians. So, I feel like we're flying through it, covering Ephesians in six sermons. How about covering it in six seconds? Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. That's the book of Ephesians. Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. And this summer, we'll spend three weeks looking at the gospel doctrine in chapters one through three, and then we'll spend three weeks looking in gospel culture it creates in a church in chapters four through six. This will be a lot like driving past the Grand Canyon at 65 miles an hour and not getting out of the car. There it is, kids. Today, we'll look at the first two major sections of Ephesians, the, the first two gospel doctrines that we see in chapters 1 and 2. We'll see Trinitar our, our Trinitarian salvation and Paul's Trinitarian prayer. So, gospel doctrine number one, Trinitarian salvation, you'll see this in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And it really just amounts to this Trinitarian salvation that Paul is going to unpack for them is really just three reasons to praise the Lord. Take a look in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, spoiler alert, here's the whole point of today's sermon. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Everything else that Paul says in the verses that follow and everything that I will say this morning all boils down to just this one thing, praise God. That's what he's saying. Bless God because He has blessed us. Praise the Lord because of what He's done for us. Paul repeats twice here at the beginning and end of this section that God has blessed us. He says in verse 3, 
He has blessed us in Christ. And then again in verse 6, He has blessed us in the Beloved. And in between those two, He has blessed us pieces of bread is the sandwich, the meat in the middle. He says two times He's blessed us, and right in the middle there, He chose us, He predestined us. That is the, the way in which the summary of this blessing. Verse 3, God has blessed us. Verse 4, He chose us. Verse 5, He predestined us. Verse 6, He has blessed us. And the whole point is to say, look at how He's blessed us. Bless the Lord. All the rest of verses 4 and 5 simply describe details about the two simple statements here. He chose us. He predestined us. And those are just meant to show He's blessed us. So let's bless Him. God the Father has blessed us. The Father's glorious role in our salvation was to choose, to predestine us. That's not just an idea we find here either, right? Romans 8, 29, you're familiar with, says, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Revelation 13, 8 describes unbelievers as those whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. This is amazing. We rebelled against God. We turned our backs on Him. We plunged ourselves into sin. We trusted ourselves more than the one who created us, and yet He chose us to be saved. That's incredible. The Father chose us, predestined us, and then sent the Son to accomplish our redemption, right? And so this Trinitarian picture of our salvation, we see that the Father has chosen us. Second, we see the Son redeemed us in verses 12, 7 through 12. Take a look at it. It says, in Him, that is the Beloved, that is Christ, in Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, yes, that is a mouthful. All of that is just to describe the fact that verse 7 begins, in Him we have redemption through His blood. The New Testament repeatedly teaches that it is because Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died in our place. It is through His blood that we have redemption when we are in Him. He did the work that the Father had planned. That's why John 17, 4, in Christ's high priestly prayer, He says to the Lord, to the Father, I have completed the work that you gave me to do. So the Father had a plan from before the foundation of the world. He chose us. He predestined us. He sent His Son. And we, in Him, have redemption through His blood. In Him, verse 11 says, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. You see the language here, 
repeatedly referring back to like just the incredible nature of God's plan from before the foundation of the world, according to His purpose, according to the counsel of His will. He set forth. It's all this language about the way that this was, this was the plan of the Godhead the Father chose and predestined us and sent the Son, and in the Son we have redemption. He accomplished our redemption on the cross through His blood. It's then repeated four times here as a primary emphasis that we are saved in Christ. Having put our ultimate hope for our lives in Jesus Christ, we then find ourselves in Him. So that when the Father looks at us, though we are sinful, He sees us in Christ, His beloved Son, His perfectly righteous Son. We're saved because having turned from our sin and believed in Christ, we are now found in Him. Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 3.9, I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Jesus told His disciples in Mark 10.45, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus paid with His own life the ransom for our redemption. This is this, is this rich element of our salvation, Trinitarian in nature, as Paul highlights it here. Both the Father and the Son acting in harmony with one another played an integral role in your salvation. And now, the Spirit also. The Father chose you, the Son redeemed you, the Spirit sealed you. And you can see this in verses 13 and 14. It says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So there's the the mechanism by which it happened, right? You heard the gospel. This is the part of our salvation we often think about because we think about it from a human perspective. We think, I heard the gospel and I chose to follow Christ. I believed and I was saved. That's the human perspective of things. Verse 13 says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So, the Spirit regenerates our hearts. We believe the gospel, and we are by the Spirit sealed for salvation until the day when either we die or Christ comes again. This is exactly what Jesus told His disciples after His resurrection in Acts chapter 1, that when He went back to heaven, they would receive the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says here, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The idea being that from the moment we're born again, the Spirit dwells in us to seal us for our lives as a guarantee of our salvation. And remember, when Paul arrived in Ephesus in Acts 19, this is great, we read their first conversation. He asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And the Ephesian Christian said, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul taught them about the Spirit. He stayed in Ephesus and he taught them about this great salvation that the Lord has given to them. 
Now he's cataloging this in his summary of his teaching to them during the years he spent in Ephesus. Paul's going to bring this up again in chapter 4, verse 30, to say that the Holy Spirit seals us until the day of redemption. But here in 1, 3 through 14, Paul highlights the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, all intimately involved in unique aspects of our salvation, each having a distinct role to play. You just sit back for a minute and think, man, there was a lot going on the moment I believed. My salvation is incredible. As we see it from heaven's perspective here, we realize this gospel doctrine of our Trinitarian salvation is glorious. Obviously, Paul isn't shy here about the doctrines of grace. He's the kind of guy who wears his Reformed soteriology on his sleeve. But emphasizing the sovereignty of God in salvation is one of the primary elements of this passage, but it's not the primary passage. Even that, the emphasis on the sovereignty of God over our salvation is really geared towards causing us to praise the Lord. That's the primary emphasis of this passage. And one danger is for us to see all this great gospel doctrine from Paul and celebrate the doctrine and think that we're doing well to stop there. We should celebrate doctrine. But Paul isn't only celebrating doctrine here. He's celebrating doctrine in order that he and the Ephesians would together celebrate God. He's celebrating the Trinitarian nature of our salvation from heaven's perspective, the the role that each person of the Trinity plays in bringing about our ultimate forgiveness and redemption. So let's just not walk away saying, wow, the doctrines of grace are amazing. Paul wants us to walk away saying, God is amazing. We ought to walk away from this passage fascinated by God in awe of Him, captivated by His wisdom, the the Trinitarian plan that He set forth before the foundation of the world in order that we might be saved. Interestingly, it seems that for whatever reason, this motivates Paul to share with the Christians in Ephesus what he's praying for them. He's so amazed by what he's been sharing with them, he just immediately just starts telling them what he's been praying. We often think about prayer and we, we overanalyze it. We, we try to dissect prayer and we want to figure out how it works. I think it's a helpful reminder to know we don't have to totally understand and figure out prayer in order to pray. I mean, electricity is an everyday part of our lives, isn't it? It's so fundamental to the way that we live our lives, we don't even think much about it. Like if the lights went out right now, we'd all just be sitting in a dark room with no windows. We don't think about that. Electricity is an everyday part of our lives. It's amazing to think that as the electricity travels through the wires, it carries so much potential, and yet, here's something that will melt your circuits. Electricity doesn't actually travel in wires. Now, I know, Some of you don't believe me, and that's okay because you'll go home and Google it and find out you were wrong. (laughs) No, in fact, you know that 
we don't actually understand how electricity works. Like if someone's explaining to you how electricity works, they're really just sharing a theory with you because you can't test it because you can't weigh electricity. So there's really no way to test like electromagnetic theory. But classic electrodynamic theory says that electricity actually travels outside the wires in the electromagnetic field, which is really bizarre to think about. But we don't need to know exactly how electricity works to make really good use of it, do we? And we use it every day, all the time, and we really haven't the faintest idea how this actually works. For the Christian, prayer is kind of like that. We, we think, well, if God is sovereign, and Paul has just come out of this huge section talking about the sovereignty of God, the, the purpose of His will, the, the counsel of His will, His plan from before the foundations of time, you would think, well, if God's already got it all figured out, then He probably doesn't need me to talk to Him about maybe adjusting His plan. I don't know. And yet, after this huge passage on the sovereignty of God, Paul shares with the Ephesians what he's praying for them. And it's just a good reminder. We don't know exactly how that works, the sovereignty of God and the prayers of the saints. How does that work? Well, we don't exactly know is the real answer, but we don't need to exactly know to know that God has promised us that our prayers are effective. We don't need to know exactly how it works to make really good daily use of prayer. What we do need is to better illuminate our understanding of how we ought to pray. And one of the best ways to do that is just by looking at some of the examples that we have in Scripture, right? Paul's prayer for the Christians in Ephesus gives us this great example to kind of shape our prayers. That's not, a, not primarily a passage on how to pray, so this isn't like the seven keys to prayer, but we can look at the prayers in the New Testament and say, I, I want to learn from how Paul prayed. I want to learn from the inspired prayers of the Apostle Paul as recorded in Scripture. So he wants the Ephesians to be encouraged by knowing what he's praying for them, and so he tells them. We can learn from Paul's example. It says, verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, notice that his prayer, and listen to this, his prayer is in itself Trinitarian in nature. Listen to how he starts out, verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And his primary prayer for them is for spiritual knowledge. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, here you go, that you may know. That's the primary thing that Paul is praying for them, that you may know. He wants the Ephesians, to, and that's amazing because Paul stayed with them, teaching them for so long and is now writing to them in order that they know things. And he's saying, I'm praying for you that you may know things. Three things he prays for them to know. Look at it there in verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know, one, what is the hope to which he has called you? 
Two, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Three, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe? And then He'll go on in verses 20 through 23 to describe how God's power that He's praying they will know manifested itself in the gospel, in their redemption, in the fact that Christ was raised from the dead, that He is seated in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and He goes on. There's a lot we could learn from Paul's example of prayer here. I'll highlight just a few things I think that we can take away as a church. Tell other believers what you are praying for them. There's nothing wrong with praying for someone and not telling them that you're praying for them. That's, that's fair. There's also nothing wrong with telling them, hey, I'm praying for you and not telling them what it is that you're praying But if you really want to be an encouragement to another believer, take a cue from the Apostle Paul. Tell them what you're praying for them. Hey, listen, I want you to know I'm praying for you, specifically praying for this, and I'm praying for this, and I'm praying for this. I just want you to know those are the things that I'm praying for you. Praying that you'll give me back my stuff, and I'm just kidding. (laughs) Right now... You've, you've probably had this experience. We've all had people say, hey, brother, I'm praying for you. And we think, that's nice. I'm, I'm glad. I need it, right? But doesn't it bless you when someone says, puts their hand on your shoulder and says, hey, I want you to know I've been praying for you this week that your love for the Lord would deepen more and more as He reveals Himself to you in His Word. I'm praying for your marriage, that you and your wife would draw closer to one another as you continue to draw closer to Christ. I'm praying for your parenting. You just have wisdom as you shepherd your kids, raising them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Like, doesn't that bless you when someone says, this is what I'm praying for you? So, Paul could have just said, after this passage, he could have just said, and FYI, I'm praying for you and then moved on. I mean, papyrus is expensive. You know, let's save some space here, Paul. But he took the time, nine verses worth, to tell them what he is praying for them. It's a good example to us. I think we can also just think about praying Trinitarian prayers, right? If we're talking to a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, Ought we not address our God for who He is? We see Paul including all three persons of the Godhead in his prayer. I mean, if, if you're praying for someone or you're praying for something, think about what role each person of the Trinity might have in answering this prayer and talk with the Father, talk with the Son, talk with the Spirit. Pray Trinitarian prayers. Finally, and again, I just want to highlight a couple of things I think we can learn from Paul here. Pray for spiritual things and not just physical things. The Ephesians are in danger in Ephesus. I mean, if you read Acts 19, and we re- we'll, re- we'll read more of it as the weeks go by, we'll read more of Acts 19, and you'll see the Ephesians are in danger. People are, even in the passage we read this morning, they had to leave the synagogue because it was kind of getting crazy for them there. They're going to face hostile opposition. 
Paul's praying for them that they would know things. They're in physical danger. Paul is praying for their spiritual well-being. We pray for people's bodies and circumstances a lot, and there's nothing wrong with that. We should pray for those things. We pray for broken bones and travel mercies and aunts and uncles and interviews and kids and cats and cars. We pray for people's jobs and classes, for their doctor's visits and their surgeries. We pray for their health and their homes. We should pray for those things. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes we only pray for those things. Do we pray for them to know deep spiritual realities that would change their perspective of all of those other things? It's not wrong to pray for healing. It's not wrong to pray that someone's circumstances will improve. But it can be telling when we only pray for that, it might just be that what we're really meaning is, God, please make their life more comfortable. We pray for someone's surgery, and we totally should. But we should also pray for that person to know the hope that they have in heaven so that even if the surgery completely fails, their faith will not. That's how Paul prays here. And it's not just here. There's 46 prayers like this recorded in the New Testament. You know how many of them include prayers for physical things? One. The other 45 are for spiritual realities. So it's not wrong to pray for physical things. The Lord wants to hear us talk to Him about those things. Cast your cares on Him. He cares for you. But let's also remember to pray for the spiritual realities that are deeper and more significant than all of the physical things that we encounter. Let's pray biblical prayers by praying for spiritual things for one another. Let's pray for each other's doctrinal knowledge, like Paul does here. Let's pray for one another's evangelism. Let's, let's pray for people to get saved through it. Let's pray for spiritual growth and maturity. Let's pray that as older saints, disciple younger saints, that fruit would come about for the kingdom of God. That's what Paul does here. And in many ways, his Trinitarian prayer then flowed out of an overwhelming sense of blessing from God in our Trinitarian salvation. These basic gospel doctrines that Paul unpacks for the Ephesians in chapters 1 through 3 are, are meant to motivate and change the way that they live as they understand what God has done for them. And as we continue through chapters 2 and 3 in the next few weeks, you're going to notice something really interesting. Just like in chapter 1, there are no commands. Paul is not commanding the Ephesians to do anything. There's no imperatives here. You must do this. He's just reveling in the wonders of gospel doctrine. In chapters 1 through 3, there are no commands. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, I mean, you, you can't even count the commands. There's so many of them. It's just a really helpful way to think about the book of Ephesians. Paul is laying a foundation for them of doctrinal truth. And sometimes when we think doctrine, we think of theologians and we think of pastors and preachers and seminary professors, but the word doctrine just means teaching. In fact, the same word in the New Testament can be translated either doctrine or teaching. All we're talking about when we say doctrine is what does the Bible say? 
what is true about this subject. So when we talk about the, the doctrine of salvation, all we're saying is, what are the truths that the Bible teaches about salvation? I think we can agree that's for all Christians. Every Christian is in that way, R.C. Sproul said, every Christian is a theologian. It's not a matter of whether you're a theologian or not, it's just a matter of whether you're a good theologian or a bad one. And it's just a great lesson for us as we see Paul is just laying this doctrinal foundation before he gets to anything that's like, you must do this, do this, you should live this way, you need to live that way. He's just sitting back and saying, guys, behold our God. Look at how great he is. Look at how amazing our salvation is. Can you believe we get to be a part of this? I mean, look, isn't this incredible? Are you guys seeing what I'm seeing? Isn't this amazing? No commands. I think really often in the Christian life, I'm guilty of this. We just want to know, just, just tell me what to do. Just come on. I just, just tell me what the Bible says I should do. Well, sometimes... <laughs> We have a really hard time doing those things. You might have noticed that in the Christian life. Sometimes we have a really hard time doing those things. And it's because we need more than just what to do. We need to behold the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 3.18, in order that we might be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We don't, just need, we don't only need to be told what to do. We do need that. We do need Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 commands in our lives. This is what it looks like to live a faithful Christian life. Do this. But we also need the theological truths that undergird all of that. The beautiful realities of the gospel that support our ability to live out the commands of chapters 4, 5, and 6. And I think sometimes we're so quick to run to chapters 4, 5, and 6 commands that we miss the internal heart motivation of chapters 1, 2, and 3 that are going to empower us and equip us and enable us to get out there and live chapters 4, 5, and 6 kind of lives. Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. We all want to live a, a gospel culture kind of lifestyle. We want to be a part of a gospel culture kind of church. If we're going to get to those things well, if we're going to do that well, we're going to need to build a sturdy foundation of gospel doctrine. That's a daily battle for the Christian as we continue to remind ourselves of the truths of the gospel in order that we might go and obey the commands in Scripture. So if you walk away from this morning thinking, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with all of that. I didn't really hear him tell me to like do anything. Like, was I supposed to do something? Here it is. Praise God. Stand in awe. Be amazed. Uh, stand back, just stunned. I can't believe our salvation is so incredible. I've never thought about it from heaven's perspective like that before. That's amazing. That's, that's what we do with this. Wow, God. Lord, you're so great. When you go to the Grand Canyon, you don't take board games with you. 
You don't do anything at the Grand Canyon. You just go there. Well, what will we do when we get there? We're going to the Grand Canyon. What do you think we're going to do when we get there? We're just going to stand, all of us, with our hands over our mouths, and just look at the Grand Canyon. And then we're going to try to walk away, and we're not going to be able to. We're going to have to turn back. We're like, we'll have five more minutes. Look. Just stand in awe. You don't do anything at the Grand Canyon. It does something to you. You walk away feeling changed, in awe. Paul wants the Ephesians to see one of the great wonders of the world here, the Grand Canyon of the gospel. He wants them to stand and marvel at the Trinitarian nature of their salvation. Before he reminds them about all of the things that they're supposed to be doing, he just wants their spiritual jaws to drop and they would stand in awe. Because remember, this whole passage started with just one thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Lord, thank you for the rich truths of the book of Ephesians. As we study through them this summer, Lord, we're asking that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, we're praising you for your great faithfulness to us. Father, you chose us before the foundation of the world. We hadn't done anything to deserve your love. We hadn't had a moment of breath on this earth to prove ourselves. Yet you chose us. You predestined us to be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, and you sent your Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus, we thank you for coming, for bearing the curse for us, for walking in this cursed world and living a perfect life that we could have never lived for suffering under the wrath of God in our place. You bore our sins in your body on the tree so that in you we might have redemption. Spirit, we celebrate that you have come into our lives in such a way as to seal us for salvation, to guarantee our salvation, that we could Look forward to the day when Jesus Christ will rend the heavens and come down and know that you will preserve us. You have sealed us for salvation. You have brought us alive from the dead to a living hope. Lord, we thank you for the way we learn from your word, even from prayers of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for recording this for us. It's such a treasure. Would you, God, work in us that which is pleasing to you? God, in light of these rich gospel doctrines, would you create in our hearts individually a gospel culture? Create in our marriages a gospel culture. Create in our homes and in our church, 
in our small groups, in our men's and women's discipleship groups. Lord, let there be a gospel culture standing in awe of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, standing in awe of the great salvation that you've accomplished for us, ready to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us, bearing with one another, praying for one another. Lord, we need your help. And so we're looking to you and thanking you for these uh, rich truths of the gospel. Would you allow them to saturate our hearts and our lives? Make much of Christ through us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.